0: Uh, I'm going to invite a dear friend of mine, Chad Anderson, up to uh, do the reading today. Would you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse three
1: and stand for the reading of God's word? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Thank You, Father, for loving us like the good Father that You are. Thank You for not stopping at the resurrection, but doing all the work that is necessary to sanctify and mature us in the faith. Thank You for Your church, all the people here today, and Your brothers and sisters around the world and throughout history who have committed Yourself or committed themselves to the cause of of faith, of righteousness, and holiness. This is a place where different people from different parts of the world can learn to love one thing. And in that one thing, learn to love each other. Father, Lord, I just finally thank You for Your Son, for His willingness to obey, even to the point of death on a cross. And today, I pray for posture. That we, the church, would be humble. A posture, have a posture of humility. That we would approach this text with vigor. Not to defend ourselves or our circumstance. To say, yeah, but God, my situation is different. But instead, Lord, that we would be humble enough to say, Lord, I want to learn. Help us, Father, to receive what You say. To trust what You're doing. And to believe that You are good. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2010, (laughs) uh, which to me feels like a million and seven years ago, a long time ago, I I liked sports, I was an athlete, and and, uh, in October of 2010, I suffered a horrible injury. I got hit, and long story short, I had pretty severe internal bleeding, and in my awesome wisdom, decided not to go to the hospital, but to go home. And uh, when I went to the hospital finally, because I was having a bunch of problems, uh, I had ruptured my kidney and bladder and broken a couple ribs and uh, was septic and, and had a bunch of stuff going on. It was a really bad situation, and I was in terrific and horrible pain. And I went to the doctor or to the hospital, obviously, so that the pain would stop. Honestly, I cared more about the pain than my life. Just kill me if you're going to kill me. But whatever's going on in me needs to stop right now. And this surgeon comes to me with this great side, bedside matter says, we're going to take care of you. And we're going to help you. And it's all going to be okay. You're in good hands now. And you want to know the first thing that that surgeon did to help me? He took a scalpel and he jabbed it in my side. Isn't it interesting how sometimes in order to find relief from pain, if somebody must, wants to help you, the first thing they have to do is they have to hurt you. Today we're going to talk about something very similar. The type of hurt from God that is intended for our help, for our development and growth. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I wrote this down. Diving in to this text is a dive into the deep end of our theology, of our doctrine, and of what it means to be a Christian. It's not deep in the sense that it's like really complicated. It's deep in the sense that it's heavy. That we have to wrestle with this text. We have to humble ourselves. That we have to listen. Church, we have to get this one. This is widely regarded, this passage here is, as, as the crescendo, if you will, of what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to the church that he's writing to. This is kind of the central point that he's making. And I believe that our hearts should be prepared that it would be the central point for us. This is a passage about sanctification. It's about God as a parent. It's about suffering and discipline. It's about peace and holiness and bitterness and porridge. And it's about pain. It's an important one. And because it's important, and because we're so far into the book here, I just want to take two minutes to kind of get a running start, if you will, and provide some context into what the author in the book of Hebrews has been sharing to this people. A little background, if you will. You'll remember that this letter was written to a group of newly converted Jews they're Christians now, but they 're young and they're exhausted and they're tired because they're facing persecution from the society around them and they're trying the society is trying to bend them back into the fold of the world, which would be obedient to the law to sacrifices to not believe is Jesus as Messiah, but to continue down the path that God had so richly died for the writer of this astounding letter, is writing to these people to encourage them to keep the faith, to warn them of the horror of apostasy, and is begging them to believe the simple fact that Jesus is better. In chapter 10, he says that the law can't make us perfect, that we need to stop sitting, that we should hold fast, we should draw near, and we should consider the things of God. He tells us the, the people then to remember. He says in verse 1032, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that means to be saved, that you endured the hard struggle with sufferings. These people are exhausted and they're tired and they're starting to fall away. And He's saying, don't you remember that these sufferings aren't new? And you held on then. In chapter 11, He says not only remember what you have done, but remember what those have done around you. The hall of faith as it's commonly regarded chapter 11 and he says look to the martyrs to those to those in our past this cloud of witnesses he says without faith it is impossible to please god and you have examples like yourself be encouraged by these things and then in chapter 12 uh, just like we heard from pastor Aaron last week he says because of the cloud of witnesses because of the example of christ because of the spirit of god that dwells within you Cast off the sin of faithlessness. Run. Endure. Finish the race. Do this to the very end. The very end of your life. And now, if you've been paying attention to this letter, or if you're that church that he has originally authored this letter to, I I wrote these down in my Bible years ago, and I've been thinking about them ever since. You have got to start, if you're really involving yourself into the situation that they're in, or maybe, for instance, you are in a dear struggle. You have endured a long bout with suffering yourself. You start when you're reading this text to ask some questions. If becoming a Christian is so important, if following Jesus is so good for us, then why is the Christian life still so painful and hard? How can we be expected to survive as Christians if the world is against us and God is disciplining us? We can only fight a war on so many fronts. How can this be an expectation? And what is discipline even for? Why can't He just fix it? What would happen to me? The final question. If I just focused... avoiding pain and suffering? Why isn't the cause of life just my peace and my happiness and my comfort comfort? Just avoid it at all costs and we'll get to heaven and live that way in eternity. These are the four questions that I've pondered for the last several weeks as we've gone through this letter. And these are the four questions that I want to work to as our outline for today. I'll read them to you again. Why does the Christian life have so much pain? How will we ever survive such a discipline? What is discipline for, anyway? And what happens if we just avoid it? First one Why does life have so much pain for us, the church? The, this is to us, the beloved, the church, the, the, the reborn of God. Hebrews chapter 12 verses five through seven and then in, in verse nine, these are the kind of the texts I want to talk to you today. We're going to jump around a little bit because he's he's making an argument, but he, he chops it up a little bit. The first argument I would make in answer to that question, why is life so painful and hard? Because you, beloved, are children of God. In verse five, have you seen this? And have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? Seems contradictory. That we would be sons of God and enact and have to endure such discipline. But think for a moment. Think about the very life of Christ. Jesus Himself was killed on a cross, and listen, God wanted it. Isaiah fifty-three: By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off and laid off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of, sorry, transgression of people. And they made a grave, with the, made him a grave with the wicked. And in verse ten, he says this: "And it was the will of the Lord to crush him." Other translations would say this: "And it pleased God to crush his son." We endure hardship in discipline in the loving nature of God because we are children of God. The reality is, it's hard to be a son or daughter of God. Like my buddy Colt, Colt was here. We were having a Bible study the other day. He was telling. Um, me a story about when his brother Jaron first came to the Lord. He was like, okay, man, absolutely. Good job. I'm so excited for you. The first thing I need you to know, this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. Listen, if somebody's told you that you need to be a Christian so that everything can be good for you and that you can be rich and you can have prosperity and you can have peace, that is eventually true in, in eternity. But here and now, you are going to be rejected by the world because they hate your God and they will hate you too. And that's just the burden of being a son of the mighty King. Why is life so painful and hard? Because you, friends, are a child of God. Verse 6, he says this, for he loves his children and is patient with them and wants to discipline them. He says this in verse 6, sorry, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves, chastises every son whom He receives. In verse 7b, he says, God is treating you as... Sons, because the work of Christ is done, we the believer have been adopted and made a member of His holy family. The Gospel is not just that Jesus died and was raised. It's that we've been purchased with a price. We are accepted as children. We are declared to be a part of His holy kingdom by the blood of the Lamb. And as His children, we are going to be raised up as his children, And this is where maybe I think many of you's idea of this text is going to flip. Thank God for the lexicon and those who know Hebrew. The literal translation for the word discipline, by the way, that word is repeated nine times in the text we're talking about today. Just a thought. It's probably a central theme of what he's trying to get across. The word discipline does not mean punishment. It literally is translated child training. You see, this is where our relationship with the word can disturb the message. Some of you cannot do anything but relate pain to punishment. Listen, all of God's punishment was poured out on the cross. He's done with the wrath and punishment because Jesus took it all. That does two things encourages you and puts a higher authority or higher position in your heart and mind of who Jesus is. What a God. We do not serve a God who is disciplining you for yesterday's sins. Oh man, I messed up and now my tire's flat. I probably deserve it. That is a poor and shallow view of who God is, that is not his character. That is not the child training we're talking about. Secondly, I think some of you maybe struggle with this idea of child training like a father disciplining his son or daughter. Maybe the word father invokes painful memories. Like verse 7 says uh, like let something different than the word respect. Let me say to you that God's discipline is not like that of the world. Whether you've had a good father or a bad father, what God is doing is different and better than what your daddy did. He does not raise his children with tools like revenge or spite. God is preparing us to rule, to be members of his kingdom because he said so. And he's doing it with love, and he's doing it for our good, and he's doing it for his glory. There is a purpose. In God's child training, and it's not just that he's frustrated or had enough. Some of you have wrongly believed, finally, that the pain or discipline that we may go through is not God at all. You have this internal conversation that goes on in your mind about the devil did it. If there's one thing that I just wish I could really we we should do like a series on or something, is this idea, this notion that I talk about all the time where people believe that the devil is near and God is far. He's lurking around at every corner. And I'm a a victim of the enemy and God is far away in heaven in someday, That is a poor theology. God is sovereign. He did not build His creation and then just press the play button and sit back and watch. We are not a science experiment. He is intimately involved in every working and every matter every whisper, every sparrow, every hurricane, every broken shoelace and flat tire, every cancer diagnosis, every death, every wrongdoing. Listen, God is doing it to us, the believer. And the devil is not some rogue character that is outside of the will of God. God is in control of all things. Whatever the the devil or the demonic presence might do is that of the intent of the Father. You think, well, that's that's kind of harsh. That's kind of rough. God is using all things and bending it. Manipulating it. Causing it. Intending it. From the very beginning to the very end, God knows what He's doing, and He's doing it yet again for your good and for His, His glory. He is not far away. First, uh, uh, Colossians, sorry, one, sixteen, seventeen. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for all things. All things there is all things. I'm not very smart, but I can get that one. And he is before all things, and in him, in him, all things hold together. Everything that makes you scream, why God? has been sovereignly placed in your path for the purpose of child raising. For discipline. He's getting at something. Something hindering your faith. Something He needs you to use later. It is a momentary affliction that makes your faith more like what? Makes your faith more like Jesus. Consider this for a moment. One person said, Oh, I wish I could, I'd cite this quote. I think it's so good. Consider for a moment, the, <clears throat> within the last moments of the Christian who has been stricken with an incurable disease, in those final breaths, when there is no hope for more life, what hope would yet remain? How strong, how simple, how childlike is the faith of that person who's in those final breaths before meeting the Savior face to face? Face to face that even in the very end of our lives, in that last moment, when we have no hope but this childlike faith that I'm about to meet my God. Consider, beloved, that maybe we have been prepared for that moment. All of that discipline was to honor God and give good to us that we would have a strengthened faith even to our last breath. The church that this letter was written to was exhausted and afflicted and persecuted. And the only thing that they could seem to or relieve their circumstance was to turn away from their faith. To give up on it. to Go back to the old way. And the author tells them to hold on because it's not punishment or abandonment from God that they are experiencing. It's discipline from a loving Father. How then do we survive this discipline that comes from the Lord? This child raising. The circumstances in our life that are brought before us that we might endure them by faith and be strengthened, be raised up, be more mature. How will we survive it? Some of you, this is a foreign question because to be frank, you're either too young or by God's grace, you're too fortunate to really have had to endure the struggle and pain An affliction that the people in this letter or maybe the people in this very room have had to endure. But the answers to this question are simple. The first one is by looking to Jesus and His example. How are we ever going to survive this persecution? By looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12, uh, 3 and 4 says this, "...Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself." So that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted, consider him. Verse four. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet re- uh, resisted to the point of shedding blood. The verse, the word "consider" literally means to keep on your mind, to keep to mind. Much can be said about being an example in our lives. I want to be an example to those around me, and I'm a guy who needs an example. You show me. And then I'll do it. If you give me a book, a book of instructions, we're in trouble. That's why the Bible's hard for me. I need faithful men around me who can, I can imitate as if they would imitate the Lord, so to speak. <laughs> My dad, uh, he's like a teacher and uh, teaches economics. He's a great man. I love him dearly. He is not a mechanic. Mm mm. My dad has never had grease under his fingernails in his life. And when I came up here to Fort Collins, you know you're young and you're in college and you're poor. I can't afford a mechanic, so you have to figure this out. There have been times of the testing of my faith that have never been rivaled as I've laid under a car. Because I had no example. I had to muddle and figure it out. That would never be true on our judgment day. We can never say, I never had an example. Because there was a God who endured a life with sinners all around him, with long suffering every day, who crawled up a mountain with a cross on his back, praying in the garden the night before until until his sweat turned to blood. Please, Lord, let this cup pass me by. He didn't want to do it and he obeyed because he was a good son. He's an example. We have an example. How will we endure persecution? How will we overcome suffering? Look to Jesus as our example. And then ask yourself, have I gone that far? Before I lost my cool or give up on my faith or just say, forget about it and throw my hands in the air and my own heart and soul, have I gone as far as He did? I wonder if we can say the same things of ourselves. Are we an example? Listen to me. Are you an example of enduring faith in your community. The second answer I would give to somebody that says, why, or sorry, um, pardon me, um, how will we survive it? It's by trusting that godly discipline is not forever. Chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 11. Besides this, we have, hard, um, have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, I love that, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The author is using a physical example of our fathers or fathers in general disciplining or raising their children up as a spiritual example of what God is doing to sanctify us in our own faith. We've had all the same experiences. And in other ways too. Some of you have been disciplined by your father and you think, oh, I know what he's getting at. Some of you have had other experiences that worked out in the end for good. Some kind of sports suffering. I, you know, I, I had to run the sprints, but in the end it was good. Hard seasons in relationships or jobs that you knew weren't right for you but you become grateful for later in time. The classic phrase, it was worth it in the end. Teddy Roosevelt, one of my favorite people to quote ever, he says this, nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, difficulty. I've never in my life envied a human being who has led an easy life. We know that this experience that we're talking about is spiritual. But He's using physical pain in our bodies to apply to our spiritual development. A physical pain, or you know, even like a broken heart in the, in the temporalness of our flesh, He's using that as a disciplinary tool to raise you up in your faith. We are trusting that God is not using this physical pain for us forever. It's temporary. But the result is forever. Does that make sense? I learn my lesson, and then forevermore, I grow from it. It yields fruit for me forever it's a good thing for a long time who wouldn't make that trade in their right mind a little bit of hurt now discipline from a loving father for peace forevermore who wouldn't make that james 1 2 says this count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness when it has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's shared experiences in Jesus and Himself. The idea of this thing is that even the death on the cross was momentary. And yet, here we are, thousands of years later, sitting in a room, growing and feasting and learning and becoming changed by a physical affliction that was yet for a moment. One last point on this just to consider the span of eternity. If your entire living life, every moment of your day, was suffering and discipline and trial and pain from the Lord, it was the worst life you could possibly imagine, but you trusted in God, the speck of dust in the corner of that room is the amount of time of the entire span of your affliction in comparison to what God is growing us and raising us four. Consider the language in verse ten and eleven. Short time, momentary. And then finally, how are we going to get through it? Because it's worth it. Verse ten. For God disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God is making a trade Trading momentary affliction for eternal fruit. Isn't that the Gospel? Don't you see that? Hey, your life's dead. You're dead in your sin. Trade me. I'll take your sin and I'll offer you my very life. Trade me. And we think for a moment that because we have found our faith or we've submitted to God in one momentary time that now eternity is taken care of. No, the Gospel is clear. Jesus' teachings are clear. Unless you take up your cross every day. Deny yourself every day. Trade Me. And follow Me today. You cannot be My disciple. You have no part with Me because this is a part of the trade. The eternal punishment has been taken care of, but there is training yet to be done. And it's worth it. It's worth it too, because I want you to know, just everybody turn to uh, Hebrews 12.15. A. I want you to see this, especially here on a Sunday morning. Is it just me or is it 207 degrees in here? Not not a good day to have the big brother up here. (laughs) Look through this, and you need to pay attention to this. How are we going to survive all this discipline, all this hardship? Verse 12.15a. See to it that no one fails. Think about that. Not see to it that you don't fail. See to it that nobody else does. This is an amazing quote from the one and only Aaron Santini. Holiness is not a lone ranger event. We are not here as a gathering to sit in chairs that face the same way, take a couple notes, and scatter back out and go to our homes. We're to love one another. We're to endure with one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to cheer each other on in the Spirit. We, too, ourselves are supposed to be a cloud of witnesses, so to speak, that we would be an example for one another, that we would share our lives. Life group isn't just a thing so it looks like we're doing stuff at the church. There is gospel growth intentionality designed behind or behind the design of what we're doing here. If you are not sharing your life with somebody else, you are you are separating yourself from opportunity not only to help others seek holiness but to have it yourselves. That someone would look at you and say, "Brother or sister, man, I'm seeing a pattern." God's doing something. Or, if you're going through suffering or trial or or, or, uh, discipline of some kind, that you would have others around you that would love you and care for you and help you through it. If you need more evidence of this, ask around about some of the testimonies in this building about how families have been wrecked or there's been death in the family, and what support and encouragement it is to your very soul to have somebody who doesn't share your last name knock on the door and treat you like a brother or sister. See to it that no one fails in here to obtain the grace of God. We have to let you into our life Or I have to let you into my life and you must let me into yours. Because if you know what happens in the secret place of our our souls is what's called the root of bitterness. It can take hold in you. Who do you feel responsible for in this church that that doesn't happen to? Who... Do you know who's responsible for you that loves you, that's maybe been calling you or texting you or inviting you to dinner or kind of seeking you out at church because their heart by the Spirit of God is growing to love you and care for you? To see to it that that root of bitterness doesn't take hold? We are the church and we are not alone. Okay, third question. We doing okay? I hear hear an air conditioner. I could go all day now. what then is discipline for why is god doing it hebrews 12:14 tells us that the aim of raising believers is to make us holy peaceful righteous if i was going to use those as descriptors just add let me tell you about a man he's peaceful he's righteous and He's holy. Who do you think I might be talking about? Jesus Himself. Ephesians 4.22 Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desire, desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new, uh, your new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's the trade. Take off. Put on. Put on him. What is God doing? What is this discipline for? He's making you like His only begotten Son. You're the orphan adopted in sin and de- or, uh, orphaned in sin and death, who's adopted by the sovereignty, providence, and grace of God by the by the affliction of His Son. You're brought into this holy family, and He's going to get to work on His parenting style. The goal is to make you. Like Jesus. First Peter says, For you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, Christ was, so that you might follow in His steps. We are to be like Jesus. Did you know that when you are asked any why God question in all of your life, why God, why are You doing this? Here's my why God There's always the same answer. This is hard to swallow, but you need to consider this. If you are a Christian, a regenerate believer, and you're in a moment where you are saying, Why God? the answer is the same. God is disciplining you that He may produce out of you what Jesus produced not judgment, not, not anger, punishment, not abuse. What does Bruce Almighty say? God is not a kid on an anthill and worthy ant. He's got a magnifying glass. That's not who God is. He's disciplining us, child training us, that we may be more like Christ. I'd love to just see a prosperity pastor handle that theology. <laughs> it is for our good, but not always going to feel good right now. What is discipline for? So that we might have the same aim. This is important. God's uh, holy discipline is revealing to us what is important to God. I'll say it again. God is disciplining us in such a way and what He's doing is He's showing Himself in His discipline. He's revealing to us what's important to God. And shouldn't be that, that stuff be important to us too? I want to be a body of people who love what God loves and who hate what God hates. And this... Uh, I believe it's verse twelve. yeah, verse twelve, he says this transition statement, therefore, you see it? Therefore, all of this this child training, and this is what he's doing, therefore, this is why he does it. It's to lift your drooping hands, to strengthen our weak knees, to make straight our path, to put things back in its place that we would be healed, to see it, to see to it, meaning together, that we may strive. The the letter that this is intended for is a group of people who are exhausted, like I've shared, they're in what I would call stinking thinking. To them, it's all bad. It may even seem like punishment. The only answer away from all this pain is to turn back to the law. The writer says it's not punishment, it's discipline, it's training. Training so that you would run with endurance. You see it? Why is he doing it? That you would lift your drooping hands. This is... This is idea still back to the race in, 12 chapters, or in chapter 12 verses one through 2 That you'd have your shoulders back and your chin up. That you would continue on with good form. He's disciplining us because He is training us. And if that is His goal, if He's saying this is where I want you to go, isn't it good that we would have the same goal? Maybe you could say it like this. We need to strive for this. No one wants a child who accepts discipline passively with apathy. Or the child who rebels at every turn of any kind of discipline where a parent is trying to help their child and they're pushing back at every turn. Parents, imagine if you had a kid who just trusted you. What a thought. Not only trusted you, but with the same vigor and earnestness that you wanted to teach them that lesson, they chased after it themselves. Strive for these things. Because Jesus is who He said He is and did what He said He did because we have an example of witnesses. Because it's temporary, because it's for our good, chin up and shoulders back and continue to run hard after what God says is good for you. We want a child that produces godliness, in this and I pray that we are them. That is exactly what verse 14 tells us, isn't it? Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness that which out no one, will see without no one will see the Lord. That's a tricky verse. This verse is not referring to a gospel of works, but rather the works produced by the one who receives the gospel. The things that God is working to produce in us and in our lives Are only possible to those who have faith in Him, who are reborn. He's disciplining you and I for righteousness because we now have access to that capability by the work of Christ. When you are dead, there's no reason to do these things because you're dead. We don't need to treat non regenerate people that aren't Christians like they ought to be Christians. First thing we need to do is get them from death to life, give them the gospel. And then once they've received it, the child raising starts up. But when you are receiving of the Lord, when you have been regenerate, you know what happens to you? You start to produce the stuff that living creatures of God start to produce. Your life is, listen to me, it is going to change. It is. If you are claiming the life of Christ, that you are reborn, but living like you are dead. One of two possibilities remain: You are unrepentant and in sin and you need child training, or you were never reborn to begin with. Living things don't behave like they're dead and dead things don't behave like they're living. It is our nature that is produced out of the will of God that does these things. See to it. That, um, to strive for peace with everyone. No quarreling amongst the body of Christ. We must live. We must be different. So a holiness that we produce a sense of holiness, of otherness, of different differentness, a representation to the world and to one another. Because without which, no one will see the Lord. You cannot stand before God as a quarrelsome, unholy, wretched deceitful person in every way without any will or any act of your conscience about any any child training acceptance and then stand before god and say i'm your son you had an act like one in fact it sounds more like you're illegitimate than behaving like a son to not produce these things is is to produce nothing of godliness the logic stands that if you are not living in the way of, of a son of God, uh, if you're not living in that way, then you should ask, in fact, if you are a son at all. So those are the three questions. We have one more, but I just want to give you there are three encouragements that we just had. These are, these are, this is good news for us. God is not just punishing us. He's doing good for us. And I, can I brag on you guys for just a moment? Just in my observation, my humble opinion... I don't know what the pastors would say about this, but I see a lot of this in us. I fell and I broke my hip, and I'm not complaining. I don't have a root of bitterness growing up. I'm trusting in God. I lost my mom to a horrible diagnosis, and the body came around me, and and we worshipped the Lord, and we trusted in God, and we knew that it was for our good and for His glory. That that is a testimony that is a holiness, that is a peace with each other. And so just as an encouragement today and a tough text in the deep end of what we're dealing with, I don't know about you know, any grade book or anything, but I would say, man, keep going in the direction we're going. Because from where I'm sitting, it's looking good. Not perfect. But we are accepting the discipline of the Lord and we are growing in our faith as a result. I'm almost done, I promise. Last page. This is the hard question. The concern might be that some of you are in here of like, I'm done with all of this suffering. I'm done with all this pain. I'm done with it all. I can't take it anymore. I don't care if I have to turn from God. I'm not handling it. In other words, what if you ask yourself the question in a private moment, what if I just avoided it altogether? Avoided the pain. Got rid of the discipline. Rejected it. Went about my own way protecting myself. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau, who who sold his birthright for a single meal. Verse 17, for you know that afterward When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. My answer to you, if you think that, this is what's going to happen. Your heart, you're going to produce a root of bitterness in your heart. A lot of studying went into this word, root of bitterness. It's not just talking about anger. You know, bitter towards God because of the discipline. That's probably the most direct connection. But there can be a root of bitterness that wells up in any sinful desire. If you're playing around with sin today, if you've got a secret browser on your cell phone, or you have a relationship at work that you know is way too close, or you've got money in a secret account, you're doing something that's wrong. I, I'm not here to call anybody out. I'm here to tell you, you're playing with fire. Hear me. Not just the punishment of what could happen legally or what could happen in your marriage or what could happen if you know so and so found out. That's the least of your problems. I'm telling you you're playing with something that's starting that is a seed in your heart and it's starting to grow. And it when it produces ultimately like James says it will produce it will end in death. But what it does is it grows in a rejection, a bitterness towards God that you will get to a place where you would never repent. It's a disease, friends. It is not isolated to your little back pocket, that you're, your little corner of the world, your closet that you're keeping it in. It will not, it will not, it will not stay there. If we don't allow God and others to help us produce holiness by the tilling of our hearts, then the root of bitterness will take its place. And like a weed, it will grow and choke everything else out in the garden. The sin that you won't let go of is not just going to affect you. There will be casualties. Look here, it says in verse 15, and the root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. There is shrapnel to your sin. It's a ticking time bomb. And unfortunately, you know who often gets most damaged? Are those in your faith community. Because they don't just have to deal with the worldly fallout. They have to deal with eternity, the weight of that, in that issue. Of what sin does and how it breaks God's heart. The root of bitterness is not merely an anger towards God. The root of bitterness is anything that you play with that you know you ought not to be. Romans 1 tells us that if you continue in this way, eventually God gives you over to bitterness. You're fighting Him, you're fighting Him, you're fi- you resist this heart, this, this sin in your life you refuse to let go of. Finally, He says, then there's your reward. We see that example played out in verse 16 and 17. This is the last piece here. That eventually, my argument would be what if I just avoid it? Eventually, you'll never accept discipline. You'll never want to repent. That will grow in you. We all remember the story of Esau. Brother of Jacob, son of Isaac. Firstborn. Sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. Why? Because he had a physical need Look at me. Beloved, I know what it means to be hungry. There are people in here who are like, oh, you know, Beck, I can eat. Don't just, I'm just going to tell you right now, you and I are not on the same level. I know what it means to be hungry. It says there that the sexual sin that it referenced. Esau didn't have a sexual fall in sin, but isn't it like a hunger? A physical need that puts its claws into you that you can't think about anything else. and you, 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 Everything else in your life has to stop until this thing gets satisfied. That can be an addiction. It can be a sexual desire. It can be a hunger. It can be whatever. But there's a moment in our life when we say, I'll give you eternity back. Just give me the desire of my flesh. I've traded you, and I want a, I want a refund. What? A disheartening thing to say. Because what will happen to Esau will happen to you. It says this, if you continue in this sin, I'm not saying to everybody, let me clarify that. Podcast is going to go crazy. Um, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. He wanted the blessing. He didn't want the repentance. And he's seeking after it with tears. And not only there comes a time when not only do you forsake this eternity, but you 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 can't find satisfaction in your sinful desire either. The warning for us, for the church back then, is, beloved... God is not punishing us. He's raising us. But if you reject that raising, something grows in you that eventually takes over. And we must be warned. There is a different story though. Always is in the Bible. Somebody who fell in that way there's another man named David. King, looks out a window, sees a woman that he wants. He desires it. So what's he do? This is, not, this, this is for real in the Bible. He kills the gal's husband and then takes her in. Gets her pregnant. The prophet comes and says, I know what you've done. And it breaks him. And he's praying that this child won't die as punishment. He's praying and he's praying... And eventually, the child does. You know, what God, you know what David does? The only difference between him and Esau. Fleshly desire, traded it back. I'll give up this royal command to come slumming down with stuff that I shouldn't be playing with. It says after the son, the, his son died, he got up from his fasting, bathed, anointed his head with oil, ate, And he worshiped the Lord. He repented. He said, God, I want to love what you love and I want to hate what you hate. And you hate what I just did and I hate it too. You see the difference? That's a hacksaw to the root of bitterness. That's the Spirit of God getting to places that we can't get and taking something out of us that we could never get to. But sometimes, like a good surgeon, He has to hurt us to help us. I close with this last verse here. This is Hebrews 3. I love this text. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you evil, unbelieving heart, oh, sorry, any of you in an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Beloved, if today is still today, if there's a a beat in your heart and a breath in your lungs, we can be like David. And turn. And if you're not really, you don't have anything going on in your life, just keep going with that child training. Okay. Um, let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your parenting style. We thank You for Your loving ownership and care for us. We thank You that You are a God of grace. That You are a God of intimacy. That You are a God that doesn't let us off the hook. And that You are a God that's with us all along the way. We praise You for today. In Jesus' name, Amen.